Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Fitz and Chen, and it's Thursday, August 3rd, and joining me in studio at Full Headquarters is Full.com contributor Dan Klein. So we're pre-recording this show for next week, and we have lined up for our Foolish listeners a mini mailbag with an interesting question on tracking stocks and uh, investments in professional sports teams. And we'll follow up, if we have time, on some earnings for uh, McDonald's and the pizza company it's emulating. But Dan, it's great to see you again. Every time you come to Full HQ, your tan is a little darker. <laughs> Thank you for sending the full jet to get me. So. So Florida, I'm guessing, is treating you quite well. It's delightful. You know, living someplace where it's never cold, you really do not get tired of that. Sure. Um, all right. So I'm going to lead us off with our listener question, and this comes in from Frank Coleman, and it's a two-parter. And uh, his first question was, "What do you think of sports team stocks such as Manchester United ticker MANU and Liberty's Atlanta Braves tracking stock?" Uh, ticker BATRA, at least for the A class. Uh, do you know of any other publicly traded sports? So, unfortunately, Frank, um, there's not much out there for investors who are interested in buying into professional sports teams or leagues, unless, of course, you have a couple billion dollars. There's a big exception. There's one, there's one that we've talked about. Yeah. So. And, um, so, you know, yeah, unless you have the money to kind of buy a franchise out, outright, uh, the two you mentioned, which are uh, Manchester United, Atlanta Braves, or Liberty Braves, as the Sox called, are about as good as it gets in terms of the peer play investments. Um, that said, before and, we dive and, and into And they're those, both very dreary stocks. They, they don't do a lot. Yeah. And the reality is, is because they're, they're mostly sort of income capped in terms of you know the Braves they have a fixed television deal you know attendance goes up and down a little bit but it it's not you know huge variances so you can sort of see where their revenues are there's not as much volatility as a more diverse business yeah and beyond and uh, beyond those two there are also some uh, what I I guess describe as roundabout ways of getting some exposure to a uh, professional sports team in your portfolio. Um, though we don't necessarily recommend you do that or buy into these companies purely for that purpose, right? So, for example, there's Madison Square Garden, so the ticker's MSG. It's a $5 billion market cap company, um, and they offer a wide variety of life entertainment, including concerts, performing arts, and sports. And the company operates the very famous Madison Square Garden in New York, as well as the Radio City Music Hall, some other venues in that city and in other regions. As well, and the relevant part of this business is the MSG Sports segment. So that represents about two thirds of the company's top line, and this business generates revenue from uh, what you would imagine ticket sales, uh, licensing. Well, the important thing is they own the Knicks and the Rangers. Yeah. they own some other things, the New York Liberty and the WNBA, but uh, the lowly Knicks and the almost uh, high flying Rangers. Exactly, is, I'm a Rangers fan. So. Uh, and they also produce some events like. Boxing, college basketball, but those two that you mentioned, Knicks Rangers, are the big franchises, um, and you know the ticket sales is a big revenue driver for them. Um, what is your experience with that? Well, I mean, again, if you're buying MSG stock, it's not quite a novelty like buying Packers stock, which isn't a real stock. It's more like a symbol of owning a piece of sure. the team. But again, MSG is not likely to diversify. They're not likely to, uh, you know. Buy a completely new business, they or buy a baseball team. <laughs> you know, there's just none for sale in New York. So again, 
unless if the Knicks make the playoffs and start to get better, or the Raiders win the Stanley Cup, there's some upside. But it's pretty much a this is the business, this is how it performs. Rights deals are locked in for long periods. Um, you know, there's some negative headwinds on the cable side of their of their business, the MSG network, because less people are going to have cable in their homes, so the the carriage fees for those are are going to start to go down over time. But in general. These are very stable, boring, um, and they're not going to do much for you. Like if, if as a fan you want to want to own a couple of shares of Man U or 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 Brave stock just to say you have it or MSG, great. But they're not investments, I would say that that are really going to do anything for you. The big thing I would keep in mind too uh, is to really. Uh, go into this if you decide that you want um, exposure to some of these companies is to keep a very long term perspective. And because you are going to see a lot of volatility in the year to year results based on how some of these teams perform. So even with Madison Square Garden, where it's not solely based on the franchises. I'd be very concerned with Madison Square Garden because there's. There's going to be some upcoming sports that do not get more money when they when their national rights deals go out. Sure. And hockey doesn't do that well anyway, but hockey could see, you know, a smaller package, you know, and basketball absolutely which does not draw well in the ratings. It's really it's like baseball. They have a lot of inventory, so it's good for the their 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 partners, ESPN and TBS. It fills up a lot of time, but they could see ESPN or somebody drop out. Uh, and in the case of the NHL, there's not a lot of companies that were interested in that last time. So you know, if NBC's not interested or or wants to to cut that back, and that's a significant piece of revenue for those leagues, and conversely for the teams. So. Live attendance is probably not going to suffer. The the Knicks and the Rangers sell out every game, even if it's not full. Um, if they're better, they'll make a little more in concessions and other things like that. But in in general, there there's not a lot of upside to to any of these stocks. Yeah, and if you listen to the company's earnings calls, you hear them talk about uh, the season. They'll talk about playoffs, whether or not they make it. Of course, their all stars, player compensation. Um, and if you look at uh, Madison Square Garden stock, the company's up twenty percent in the past year. Meanwhile, uh, as you mentioned, Dan, the the Knicks have been playing very well for the past three or four seasons. The Rangers, at least, doing much better than that. But you can't always assume the performance of these teams will correlate with the financial performance of the franchise or the price of the shares. And if you want to stretch, I guess, the connection at least between financials and franchises even further, there's actually a few other companies I want to bring up. Uh, just really quickly, um, they're uh, Canadian companies, and that includes Rogers Communications and Bell Canada, because they own major stakes in the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Raptors and the Blue Jays, but these are thirty and fifty billion dollar companies. So the sports teams make up such a small part of their business that I'd never even consider them uh, to be really major drivers of that investment story at all. The real value in owning a sports team is the appreciation of the franchise. You know, if if, if you look at you know baseball teams and and basketball and hockey teams, not so much NFL teams, they may lose money on an operating basis from year to year. Not a lot of money because of the TV deals, but lose money. But 
some of these teams that were purchased, uh, you know, the the Clippers recently for two billion by Steve Ballmer, which was like something like you know twenty times more than they sold for last time. And usually, when you see like the Forbes valuations for these franchises, when they sell, they sell for much more than that because they're they're novelty purchases for for billionaires. You know, if right now the Knicks were put up for sale and some of that value returned to shareholders, they would probably be worth well more than what their actual you know paper value is because. Who wouldn't want to own the basketball team playing in Madison Square Garden in New York? Yep. So, Frank, uh, I'm going to turn back a little bit now to the co- some of the companies that you specifically mentioned. So, for Manchester United, let's take a look there. Um, you know, this is a company that generates its revenue from similar sources um, as we talked about for Madison Square Garden. So, you're talking about partnerships, merchandising, ticket sales, uh, broadcasting rights, and uh, obviously, this is a team that has an absolutely legendary brand and reputation. Uh, kind of what you alluded to, Dan. You know, 140 years in the making. They have hundreds of millions of fans around the world. And the company's valuation of about three billion dollars, and I, even then, you know, I'm still hesitant to kind of stake your investment on the performance of a single team. Uh, it might not be necessarily as bad as placing a bet in Vegas, for example. <laughs> but how often do the experts and the biggest fans of any franchise really accurately predict the results of that team's performance year in and year out? And the thing is. You look at, for example, 2015 for Man U when the team did not play that well. They failed to qualify for Champions League. Um, they lost out on match day revenue. They lost out on broadcasting revenue, sponsorships, and that showed in the financial results. So going to, back to that point, you know, a lot of investors need to be willing to stomach some more year-to-year volatility with something that tracks a single team like this. And they, uh, you know, you can might see part of the commercial business, which is more stable, which might include things like the sponsorships, the merchandising, the broadcasting. Um, that might eventually help stabilize things to an extent, um, but you're better off taking a step back, really, a more high-level view. And I think there are some tailwinds for the company in that, you know, at least specifically for Menu, at least you have soccer worldwide. The popularity is really growing. Uh, UEFA, which is the administrative organization that oversees the sport in Europe, they're commanding higher and higher price tags for their broadcasting rights to games. I think the last deal was like $3.4 billion, up from two point five. Um, and Chinese companies are actually starting to shell out hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, to kind of establish the fan base and viewership market there, uh, as they're trying to like, just grow up the sports. And there's always base. the possibility that it Finally, catches on here. I mean, you know, Premiership Games have the 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 rights have bounced around a little bit. I Mm -hmm. think Fox just said they weren't going to renew them, um, and they've never commanded big money. It's not a major property, but Man U and some of the big teams have started to gain a foothold. Uh, You know, they just played. I think it was called uh, the Classic in Miami, which is two of the Spanish league teams. You know, for the first time ever, played uh, their big game. And Man U is a team that can travel, that can play in other markets. So they have some growth potential, but it's limited. You know, the the amount of people that live in China that are going to become New England Patriots fans, even if football becomes huge in China, is not it's not the same multiple of what a New England fan living in Boston is going to do in terms of buying merchandise and watching on TV and paying for for various things. So there's a little bit of upside, but there's only so much you could do. It's really more in a down year. They're not going to do as well because they're not going to have as many games. They're not going to play in as many leagues and qualify for certain things or get, you know, different playoff ticket prices and things like that. And in an up year, there's kind of a maximum. There's not a lot more sponsorship space to sell in that jersey if you've seen it. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think 
it, you know, depending on the sport, but especially for some of these European teams that do have more of that worldwide appeal, I think that uh, in certain regions they do s- still have some room to run. But um, let's move on to the second part of Frank's question. So he asked, while looking up Liberty's Atlanta Braves tracking stock, I wondered what you all think of tracking stocks in general. Why would a complete uh, company completely spin off a portion of the company when they could just issue a tracking stock for a particular segment? So um, the Securities and Exchange Commission has a short summary on tracking stocks, and they summarize it as a type a type of common stock that tracks or depends on the financial performance of a specific business unit or operating division of a company, rather than the operations of the company as a whole. Tracking stocks trade as separate securities. As a result, if the unit or division does well, the value of the tracking stock may increase. Even if the company as a whole performs poorly, the opposite may also be true. So, specifically, for the Atlanta Braves tracking stocks called Liberty the Liberty Braves Group. That's part of Liberty Media Corporation, and this is a pretty complicated company structure here. Yeah, and, and you know, the, just to get back to part of Frank's question, which is why would a company do it? Is instead of a spinoff, if you spin off a company, you need all separate executives. You need a CFO. You need all that apparatus. So it's a cost-saving measure because it can still run as a division. You're just breaking out the financials, which you're probably doing anyway, and just giving people the ability to invest only in. That part of the business, and with Liberty, the Atlanta Braves do not match anything else they own. Yeah, at its core, and you really touched on it there, is the idea behind these tracking stocks. Um, it is supposed to kind of basically open up the books a little bit and uh, really give investors a look at the value for some of these individual segments, right? And specifically for Liberty Media Corporation, um, they have these three segments. They have, one is their Sirius XM stake. Uh, the second one. Uh, their Brave Sports franchise, which we're talking about here, and which they, they only have, own a piece of, to 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 make it even sure. more confusing. And then they have something called their Formula One Group, which interestingly enough is made up of stakes in Live Nation, Time Warner, and Viacom public companies. So um, you know, each of these segments has their has three tracking stocks actually for the different share classes, representing the assets of the business. And when it comes down to it, uh, in terms of you know why the companies would might pursue this. Uh, Basically, giving investors without splitting up the company, right? Let's say maybe not so much in this instance, but if a company gets some synergies, for example, from its differing operating units, they can still allow investors to invest or to hone in on a specific right. one. And, of those. and realistically, you know, I like SiriusXM. I, I it's a good business. It's a growing business. They have the ability to lower costs as there's less competition out there in the radio world. I don't care for the Atlanta Braves. I would not be interested in owning one piece of stock that includes both of those companies. They they're just not related in any way. Mm-hmm. So, I don't want the Braves, you know, and the potential for baseball rights selling for less or the team being bad and attracting less fans or getting less viewers on cable. I don't want that to drag down a potential investment and I don't own Sirius, but I have in the past, you know, in in a company that's a revenue-based uh, you know, subscription model. So, mm-hmm. it's really a way for a company that has a strategy, but that doesn't necessarily make sense on a consumer level. Split up and let you say, okay, you know, these are different things, and I like some, and I don't like others. Sure. Uh, so, uh, for Frank's uh, the last part of his question uh, that we want to touch on is the reverse side of it. Uh, you know, we kind of touch on why these companies would, uh, why would they they would pursue a tracking stock. So then, if that is an option out there. Why are companies doing these spinoffs at all, and things along those lines? I think what it comes down to is, 
your ownership rights are severely reduced when you have a tracking stock. And the thing is, um, you're investing in essentially the cash flows, the assets of that business, but you don't actually get an ownership stake specifically in that. It's in the broader company. And at the same time, uh, you have limited voting rights. And a lot of people find these structures to be very complicated, very convoluted. Frankly, it kind of is in the in the case of Liberty Media Corporation. And there's often uh, issues where people argue that there's conflicts of interest uh, in terms of these three, the management of the three tracking stocks all kind of being interrelated. Whereas if you have a spinoff, it's cleaner, and often cases it will. Uh, be able to bring in more investors who are more comfortable investing in a separate entity and the the more simple nature behind that. I mean, the reason there's not a spin-off is control. And mm-hmm. you know, even if you own you know a controlling interest in the spun-off company, if it's part of your day-to-day operations and there isn't a separate CEO and there isn't a separate board, you just have more control over it. So in some ways, it's personality. You know, Amazon could spin off uh, AWS or probably three other businesses they have, but they choose not to. So, you know, they also don't have tracking stocks, but in theory, they could. It's very different from a retail store to to be selling, you know, cloud computing space. Absolutely. So, you know, in somewhat, it's choice, and I'm not a huge fan of tracking stocks for the reason you just said. Like, I don't actually. You know, have a direct ownership interest in the part of the company I like, and it becomes a little convoluted, and they, they, you know, they don't seem to follow the same pattern sometimes, and especially something like Atlanta Braves can follow an emotional pattern, you know, where the stock will go up because the team makes the playoffs, even if the revenue difference, you know, in playing one wild card game and losing is not particularly relevant to the bottom line. Sure. All right. So we kind of been all over the place, but uh, Frank. Our big takeaways here, in terms of you know the tracking stocks, you got it from Dan. But for professional sports investing, because that's just a really interesting area um, that's kind of unique in uh, the stock market. Uh, you're, I think, ultimately you're better off going big picture and looking at some of the trends that are related to sports. Actually, so if you're you might be better off, for example, looking at apparel brands that have a lot of sponsorships with teams, or you might be better off looking at broadcasting entertainment companies um, that are essentially distributing the content. Um, I will say, though, that the bright side to a Liberty Braves tracking stock or to investing in Manchester United, for example, is that if you're a big fan of these teams, um, whatever team you end up Investing in, you're going to be more motivated than ever to track the company's progress, <laughs> and you are going to follow their results all the time. And I, that that is, I can see kind of the appeal of that. And but at the same time, it makes it investing can be as uh, an emotional activity I, I, as it is. Here's the thing: I think as a novelty to buy a few shares, the emotional part is great. Yeah, but I'll share a horse racing analogy. Horse racing odds are based on how the betting goes. So if you're at a race like one of the Triple Crown races where a lot of non-racing fans are there placing bets and there's a horse named after one of the local sports legends there was a Captain Messier who ran one year in New York <laughs> at the at the Belmont and not in the actual Belmont Stakes but at at that and it was a long shot that got bid up to a favorite because it had a name and people went oh it's going to win at sure. New York it came in like you know eighth sure. so and that can happen with with stocks where people are making emotional decisions so you know as i said earlier i don't think these are great investments because they're not going to follow the logic of most companies and that that always scares me yeah and 
Don't let your love of the franchise obviously overly influence. Buy a shirt. Buy a jersey position. if you love the franchise, not sure. a not stock. Okay, um, we have a few more minutes here, and I did want to talk about uh, the McDonald's and Domino's uh, stories, basically. So, can you give us a rundown? So, McDonald's basically really uh, hit it out of the park, if we're going to go with the sports analogy, with their latest earnings and something that you touched on. You think that has been really important for them? So, McDonald's has been, yep. you know, they've made some effort to improve obvious flaws in their food. But their big focus has been on process. So everything from kiosks when you order to curbside delivery to to eventually automating some of these things and delivery in an increasing amount of markets. And they won't say that they're doing what Domino's is doing, but I look at it and say they've followed a model that Domino's Pizza has done very well. You and I both have eaten plenty of pizza. Is Domino's your favorite? No. If given a choice of six pizzas in front of you, if Domino's was one of them, it would be the last one you ate. Domino's is definitely not my deserted island pizza choice. Right. But the fact is, at 11 o'clock at night, you can text a pizza emoji to Domino's and a pizza will show up. And it's a convenience thing, once you have all your settings established. And that's the model McDonald's is working on. They know the Big Mac is not the best cheeseburger available to you in most markets. You you can get a bigger chain burger a lot of places, you can get a fast casual burger, you can make a better burger. But the Big Mac can be the easiest burger to get to you. And they are working very hard and spending a lot of money to do that. And I look and I say, we've talked about this before in this show, a Big Mac doesn't travel well. Chicken McNuggets do not travel well. The idea of McDonald's delivery is absurd to me, because the fries are soggy, nothing is good. But in the markets where they've tried it, it's working very well. Sales are going up, people are ordering again, and to the point that they're trying to Get it to every logical market. I mean, there are some McDonald's in business areas where they won't have it because it won't make sense at night, but they're trying to make it so if you are hungry, you can get McDonald's as easily as you can get Domino's. And that strategy is a better strategy than making your food better. Sure. And I think. You know, we have a company here where uh, it was wasn't that long ago when they saw a huge boost from uh, the introduction of all day breakfast, and since that stabilized and they saw the boost from that kind of moderate over time, they've been looking for other ways to kind of innovate and keep customers coming in, and the results have borne out that you know some of their. Uh, Kind of fancier burgers are doing relatively well. Some new other menu additions, but ultimately, I think uh, some of these things that you've talked about in terms of emulating Domino's and in that convenience factor, and uh, also you know basically getting it to customers whenever and however you they have want to it. evolve your food. I think the one thing McDonald's learned was that they were too stagnant when when everyone else was moving to fresh and you know with without various things and cleaner menus. McDonald's spent a long time doing nothing, and they've caught up on that. But I don't think they want to fall into the game of Burger King and Taco Bell where they're stunt menu items. Because if Burger King's throwing out the latest, you know, uh, Cheetos, whatever, that might work and it might not work. So McDonald's doesn't do, they, they do limited edition things, but they're not as gimmicky. So they're not building their business on a huge pop in sales from, from that type of item. They're trying to build a stable, growing model. And when you look, if delivery becomes something people have the app, it becomes that much easier to keep them ordering through delivery. And I think I think it's going to work as much as I, you know, having looked at the numbers, as much as I don't believe anyone should get McDonald's delivered or that anyone should ever eat a Domino's if it's before midnight. People are clearly, you know, what was it, uh, 25 consecutive quarters of U.S. store growth, about almost 10% in same store sales comps this quarter. 
For Domino's, yes. For Domino's. This is a company that just continues to add locations and add sales at existing locations, and they've done that by making things very, very easy for customers. There you have it. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you, Dan, for joining thank us. You. Always great to have you here. Uh, people in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Molly Fool may have for more recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Full on. 